This week on the podcast, we are reviewing a prestigious guideline on Parkinson's disease treatment. In this guideline, the authors recommend that rehab therapies begin upon the initial diagnosis of Parkinson's disease and continue throughout the disease course. But sadly, what this guideline highlights for me is I just think as a profession, we are underserving our clients with Parkinson's disease. Rehab isn't always delivered as consistently as these guidelines recommend, and I think there's a lot of possible areas of treatment that we miss. By looking at this guideline today, I think it's going to expand your knowledge of how we can help patients with Parkinson's disease. It really gives a lot of information just about the disease process, especially the pervasiveness of non-motor symptoms, and then goes into the effectiveness of different kinds of treatments. And then to discuss what this looks like for our occupational therapy practices, it is my honor to welcome back to the podcast, Brandy Archie. Brandy is an OT entrepreneur who serves older adults, including Parkinson's disease clients. So let's go ahead and dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles, then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this Parkinson's disease evidence review, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. To gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, which is our OT evidence-based practice platform. It is currently just $79 to sign up for the club, and in there you can take a test about this podcast episode and we will generate a certificate for you. So bearing in mind that this could count as a continuing education course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to identify the non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease that OTs can help manage. And our second learning objective is that you will recognize why the habit of exercise is such an important consideration for OTs when they work with these clients. So let's walk through this journal article and then we will bring Brandy onto the podcast. Our article today is called The Diagnosis and Treatment of Parkinson's Disease, a review. It was published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, in 2020. And it is actually ranked second on our list of the 100 most influential OT journal articles. So the article begins with just this high-level introduction to Parkinson's disease. It reminds us that neurological conditions are the leading cause of disability worldwide. And for unknown reasons, Parkinson's disease diagnoses are increasing more rapidly than other neurological disorders. An estimated 6.1 million people around the world had a Parkinson's disease diagnosis in 2016, and that was 2.4 times higher than in 1990, which is just a huge increase over that time period. Most of the time, what triggers Parkinson's disease is unknown. But there are some known genetic and environmental contributors. In some studies, exposures to pesticides, herbicides, and heavy metals were shown to be linked to an increased risk of Parkinson's disease. The intro also reminds us that Parkinson's disease is just one type of Parkinsonism. 
And Parkinsonism is this umbrella category of neurologic disorders that are characterized by rigidity, slowness, and tremor. Parkinson's disease is the most common of the Parkinsonisms, but if you work with Parkinson's disease patients regularly, I think it's really important to be aware of the other types, especially multiple system atrophy, which we've reviewed in the club before. So after this high-level intro, the authors share their intent for the article, which was simply to review the evidence on the diagnosis and treatment of Parkinson's disease, and they specifically looked at treatments that were available in clinical practice. Their method to do this was they searched for systematic reviews and guidelines that looked at this diagnosis and treatment of Parkinson's disease. And when they did this, they found 26 articles that met their criteria, and then they synthesized the information into this review for us. I'm going to walk through each of these areas and pull out the information that I think is really important for OTs to know. There's a ton of information in this article, so if you work with this population, I definitely recommend that you read it in full. They begin with the pathophysiology, which is the changes in your body function, specifically at the brain level. And I am going to take the time just to give a high level of this because it will help us understand the clinical presentation then. So... Parkinson's disease is characterized by the death of neurons that synthesize dopamine. And these neurons are thought to help control various functions in the body, specifically voluntary movement, and then a broad array of behavioral processes such as mood, reward, addiction, and stress. Another hallmark of Parkinson's disease is the presence of Lewy bodies in the brain, which are essentially buildups of protein that disrupt normal brain function. So in addition to the production of dopamine gain disrupted, which I think is what most of us associate with Parkinson's disease, there are other neurotransmitter systems that are disrupted during this Parkinson's disease process, notably serotonin, which helps control our sleeping, our eating, and our digesting and neuroepinephrine, which helps control our blood pressure and heart rate, especially related to fight or flight. So when you think about all these systems being disrupted during the disease process, it makes a lot of sense why the clinical presentation is so complex. I also want to spend just a moment on how we currently understand how Parkinson's disease progresses. There's such a wide variety in how quickly it presents and which symptoms are the most prominent, but there does tend to be this arc of a typical presentation that is summarized in the BRAC hypothesis. This understanding of Parkinson's disease is not set in stone. There's definitely some controversy around it, but it does summarize how we understand it the best at this time. So in this hypothesis, in stages one and two, the disease begins at the lower brainstem in the medulla and the olfactory bulb. And this is what leads to patients having some of their first symptoms, which is often the disruption of smell and sleeping difficulties. In stages three and four, it progresses to the midbrain and forebrain. And that's when we start to see the classic presentation of Parkinson's, those motor symptoms that most of us associate with Parkinson's disease. And then in stages five and six, the disease progresses throughout the brain, and that's when the cognitive impairment and hallucinations start to occur. So that really sets us up to understand the clinical presentation and symptoms of Parkinson's disease, which the article then goes into. You are probably already familiar with the classic motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease, tremor, stiffness, slowness, and imbalance. 
But as you probably just picked up in the explanation of the pathophysiology, the impact really reaches beyond motor symptoms. The article specifically notes that patients may not volunteer the non-motor symptoms that they're experiencing, either because they feel embarrassed by them, or they simply may not be aware that these symptoms are related to Parkinson's disease. As we already noted, non-motor symptoms often begin to develop years before the motor symptoms emerge, and non-motor symptoms tend to increase in severity over the course of the disease. These non-motor symptoms include rapid eye movement sleep disorder, which I always think is a misleading name because it makes it sound like something's going on with your eyes. But what's happening is the normal paralysis of sleep doesn't take hold and patients tend to literally act out their dreams. There's also the loss of smell, which we mentioned, and then autonomic dysfunction, such as constipation, urinary dysfunction, and orthostatic hypotension, and then excessive daytime sleepiness and depression. So those are kind of the earliest non-motor symptoms that tend to emerge. And then as the disease progresses, patients can also start to experience visual disturbances, somatosensory dysfunction and pain, anxiety, apathy, psychosis, and dementia. From there, the article goes on to talk about the subtypes of Parkinson's disease. And if you're like me, you can just think of your own community and clients and recognize that Parkinson's disease presents in so many different ways. And there is this ongoing effort to categorize these different kinds of subtypes of Parkinson's. The best understanding that we have at this time is to categorize it into these three different subtypes. The first being mild motor predominant, in which Parkinson's starts at a younger age. There's more mild motor and non-motor symptoms. It progresses slowly, and there's a good medication response. Then there's this intermediate subtype where the onset of age is more intermediate, the symptoms are more moderate, and there's a moderate to good response to medication. And then the last subtype they call diffuse malignant, which happens to 9 to 16% of patients, so a smaller percentage. But in this, the symptoms progress rapidly. The presentation of motor symptoms are accompanied by more severe non motor symptoms, and there is just not as good of response to medication. So with all that background knowledge, the authors head into the diagnosis and assessment of Parkinson's disease. And diagnosis is actually just made mostly by history and examination. There is a specific test out there, which I'm not sure how to pronounce, but it looks like DATSPECT that actually measures dopamine transporters. But this test is only used when they're having difficulty making that precise Parkinson's disease diagnosis. Relevant to OTs, I wanted to highlight two assessments that are common. The Parkinson's disease questionnaire 39, which is free, it's easy to administer, and it really helps you think about Parkinson's disease holistically. And then there's the unified Parkinson's disease rating scale, which is another common one. And then from there, we head into the information that we really want to know about as OTs, which is treatment. So for all Parkinson's disease patients, treatment is currently geared towards managing symptoms. There are medications that bring significant relief from these symptoms, but I think it's really important to understand that ultimately these medications do not modify the overall course of the disease. So even though patients may be feeling better on the medication, these changes at the brain level are still ongoing. 
But what's super important for all therapists to know is that the most promising treatment that actually shows the possibility of maybe slowing the progression of the disease is something that we can be helping with, and that is high-intensity exercise. In the club and on our podcast page, I'll link to the latest 2022 article that I could find about exercise and the neuroprotective effect it has for these Parkinson's disease patients. We aren't fully sure at this time that it modifies the disease course, but it is the most promising treatment. I think it's absolutely something that OT should be talking with their patients about. There's a lot of resources out there for you. And what's interesting is there isn't just one specific way to exercise to get these effects. The important thing is that it's high intensity and that it's ongoing. And the article specifically lists gait and balance training, progressive resistance exercise, treadmill, strength, aerobics, exercise, music and dance-based approaches, and Tai Chi. The authors don't specifically link this to occupational therapy, but I think as OTs, it's really important for us to be listening to our patients and working with them to find the kind of exercise that they can be doing on an ongoing basis. So from there, turning specifically to rehab therapies, in the article, the authors answer the question, how soon should rehab therapies be prescribed after a patient is diagnosed with Parkinson's disease? And here's what they say that I think is really important. They say, at the time of diagnosis, an appropriate exercise regimen can be prescribed based on the patient's symptoms, and rehabilitative therapies should be continued throughout the disease course. The article notes occupational therapy is a part of that interdisciplinary therapy team that is vital to providing quality care for patients. Rehab therapy is listed as an option for all symptoms across the various disease stages. And alongside our rehab colleagues, our overall goal is to improve motor symptoms, gait imbalance, function, hypophonia, and dysphagia. And then final thing I'm going to pull from the article is just highlighting the treatment of those non-motor symptoms that we talked about. The authors say that for these non-motor symptoms, that symptomatic treatment is similar to what you would deliver to any member of the general population. Again, they don't specifically link this to occupational therapy care, but I think when you listen to that list of the non-motor symptoms and think about areas like sleep and autonomic dysfunction, those are areas that we are lots of times accustomed to talking about with our patients and providing support around. And I think there's tremendous opportunities for us to help our patients manage these. That is all I'm going to pull from this article. Again, it's an awesome read. I highly recommend that really all OTs read it because it gives such a great picture of just our overall understanding of this really common disease. So from here, just to help us dig in more to what it looks like on a really practical level to be delivering high-quality care to Parkinson's disease patients, it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Brandy Archie. Brandy Archie received her doctorate in occupational therapy from Creighton University. She is a certified specialist in both living in place and low vision therapy. She has over 15 years of experience in home health, neurological, and elder-focused practice settings. She is the founding director of Access Able Living, a company whose mission is to adapt environments to fit the needs of older adults and keep them living safely in their homes in the Kansas City area. The current project that she is working on is the development of an app called Ask Sammy, which combines tech and clinical knowledge to create accessible equipment recommendations tailored to each person's disability and environment. 
So without further ado, I will plug Brandy into our podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Brandy. It's great to have you. Thanks. I'm glad to be back. Oh, it's great to have you back. And I'm so thankful to be talking about this article. I'm so fired up about it this morning. I live in a community where it's a farming community, so we have lots of farming chemicals, so we have a higher incidence of Parkinson's here, and it has been a really hard couple of years to have a chronic conditions, and the people I know with Parkinson's, I wish they had an OT that they were seeing on a regular basis to help them navigate things, and I think of the six million people out there with Parkinson's, and I think we're underserving them, and I think this article will just help move that conversation forward. And I'm so thankful to be talking about it with you. Yeah, I'm really glad that we're bringing this up, especially about some of the things that the article talks about what is best practice and how that's not really Mm -hmm. supported by the way our healthcare model works. Yes. Um, And for us to come up with some new ideas that maybe people can use right away to try to serve Parkinson's patients better. Yep. Yeah, I think there's things we can do right away, and I think there's changes we can be making long-term, too, with the new research that's coming out. Before we get there, I really want to ask you a little bit about your story. You've been on the podcast before, but I did not ask you how you found occupational therapy, and I would love to hear that. Okay, so I'm kind of a strange bird, but I knew I wanted to be an OT when I was in high school, And it's because I had wanted to be a physician and people, of course, always like to hear kids say they want to be doctors. And Mm -hmm. but then I realized that the doctor only sees you when you're sick and you don't ever go back when you're better or during that process. So I realized that I like the process of getting better. So the first thing that other adults were recommending me to was physical therapy. And that seemed cool. And I was in a freshman biology class and a lady came to talk to us about health careers And then there was a list of careers by salary. And so I'm like, oh, I'm going to be a PT. And I looked at it, and then right above it was occupational therapy. I was like, well, what is that if it makes more money? Now, I don't know if that is something that is real life, but it was enough that I needed to find out about OT. And so once I did find out about what it was and how it was different from PT, it really fit well with my personality. And I've been about OT ever since. Hmm. I wonder if we're the same age because I also discovered OT in like a careers class. And same reason I was drawn to it because I remember thinking like, I want to walk along with someone as they're going through something difficult Mm -hmm. and therapy gives you an opportunity to do that. And that has definitely held up for me to this day. Yes. You have worked in multiple different settings. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the settings you've worked where you've seen Parkinson's patients and kind of the main focus of serving them in those different settings. Sure. Yes, I have worked in literally all the traditional settings. But the places where I've seen Parkinson's patients the most have been in inpatient rehab, home health, and then outpatient neuro. So in inpatient rehab, It's not usually a primary diagnosis because that's an acute issue that's happening, but it's Mm -hmm. certainly affecting what's going on with somebody, and you have to take it into consideration when you're doing your treatment plans. So I guess we looked at Parkinson's and worked with it as a secondary condition, but still affecting their ADLs while we're Mm -hmm. dealing with acute stroke or knee replacement or something like that. And then... In the home health setting, I feel like that's the place I've been most involved with Parkinson's because 
we know that it's a progressive disease, right? And so in order to help people in the best way, I think you need to be forward thinking. And the way to provide the most assistance, I think, is by making environmental changes. Because we can't control a whole lot about what's going on with the body. We can ameliorate it as much as possible with exercise and treatment, but we know that it's going to affect us over the course of our life. So in home health, Mm -hmm. it's cool to be able to work with Parkinson's patients because we can do things like make sure that the floorways are clear and limit how many changes of flooring there are and really plan out the way that we do our everyday things from like, where do you get your clothes from? Where do you take them to to get dressed? How can we limit your fall risk? We can do all those things in the person's home, in home health, whereas it's just kind of harder to make happen when you're not there personally, Mm -hmm. right? They'll say, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. You're an outpatient clinic and you tell them all these things. But did they actually do it? Can they do it? Is there anybody to help them do it? Are they consistently doing it? So I think home health is like a prime way to help people with Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. And even though home health, it would probably also be a secondary condition because they might have maybe went to the hospital for a fall or a total knee replacement and they happen to have Parkinson's. I do think that by the time you're home, you've dealt with many of the acute issues and now you're like trying to get back to real life. So it's another good place to really address Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. And then for the outpatient rehab side, I worked at a neuro outpatient clinic. So everybody who came in had some kind of neurological diagnosis. So we were a very specialty outpatient within like a large hospital system. And so that was interesting because people were initiating coming to us for a particular reason. You know, because somebody might recommend somebody to go to outpatient, but it's really on the patient to make that happen, right? Whereas if you're in the hospital, OTs are showing up regardless if they want to or not. (laughs) (laughs) So that's cool because we've got to focus a lot more on IADLs, including driving and figuring out how to do their everyday tasks and their hobbies and the things that they love. And so then we're making more adaptations to the activities that they're doing and maybe the way that they do it so that they can still be really functional and completing it. I'm so happy that you worked in this outpatient neuro setting. I was thinking about that throughout the article, just wondering if there's just aren't enough outpatient neuro settings out there. Like I'm in rural Nebraska, so maybe I have a skewed sense of that, but I don't know of any in a wide radius of me and definitely seeing the need for them here and the need for more of them. So I'm super happy that you've worked in that kind of specialty setting and I'd love to see more of them out there. I also want to ask about your current work and working with Parkinson's patients there. Oh, yeah. So I'm the owner and founder of Accessible Living, and so we do adaptive equipment to help people stay independent in their homes. So we actually work with a lot of Parkinson's patients in that way because they're reaching to us directly in order to figure out ways to make it safer at home. So that those kinds of adaptations could range from things that we might change in the house, like adding a shower chair and a handheld shower head, to things to aid in their mobility. Like there's this new product out that I'm excited about. Just tried it with a lady yesterday and it's called Next Stride, but no T in the X Stride. And so, you know, a U-step walker is very popular because it gives you that light to help decrease your, your freezing so that you know to automatically step through that laser light and keep going. 
And then the one that has a, that's connected to the walker also has a metronome. And that helps you tap into your automaticity of walking so that you're not thinking about each step and therefore you may walk smoother and have less freezing. And it works great. However, people with Parkinson's don't always need a walker in order to be safe. Your balance might be good, but you are having these motor planning problems with your walking. And so mm-hmm. the next stride is that same kind of technology, but it's attachable to anything. So you can put it on a cane, you can put it on your regular walker if you don't need a U-step walker. It's just nice to be able to put it in different places. And so while I'm not a PT and I'm not judging their mobility or trying to improve their mobility like in a gait fashion, we're thinking about it from a functional standpoint. The lady who I saw the other day, she called us because she just keeps falling. She gets to moving really fast and can't stop herself until she hits a wall, literally, and either Mm -hmm. stays up or ends up on the floor. So coming up with some ways to make her walking more smooth with exterior things like adaptive equipment and that device are really functional strategies, right? I'm not judging her gait pattern. What I'm doing is trying to give her the tools that her brain no longer has to work with, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, totally. So yeah, it can range all across the board for the adaptive equipment. Mm -hmm. Oh man, I'm so happy to be talking to you about this article because you have all this practical experience in all these different settings. So turning to the article, I'm curious what your takeaways were. Did you learn new things, even though you've had all this practical experience with Parkinson's? It was great that it clearly stated that occupational therapy particularly is effective and movement is necessary. Sometimes I think in research, if especially if it's not driven by OTs, that they can just lump us all together and say people need to exercise, people need to move. And that's all true. But outlining that our services are important in research, I think is really motivating, first of all, and then mm-hmm. also helps us to stand on our own two OT legs. And so we can prove that we should be doing this kind of work and we should be working with these patients. Mm-hmm. I was going to also say that I think it's a good reminder of all the systems that it affects. I think mm-hmm. we think mostly about trimmers and maybe self-feeding and then shuffling gait and falls. But to remember that it affects sleep and it can affect continence. Those are important things to keep on top of our heads so that we're not only focusing in pigeonholing ourselves in. That's why we're awesome as OTs is that we can look at the whole system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thinking about all those non-motor symptoms, I think especially for me, thinking about like the autonomic system, which I feel like in general, OTs are becoming more aware of, better at helping with management of and how needed that is in Parkinson's. And I just wonder how many patients with Parkinson's don't even connect issues like that to their Parkinson's disease and the opportunity for education. And just to normalize things, like a lot of these non-motor symptoms are so personal. It mentions that patients probably aren't likely to bring it up in a visit even because they're personal, because they don't realize that it's connected to Parkinson's. I just think there's such a huge opportunity there for OTs. And it definitely expanded my thinking about Parkinson's and the possibility of OT there. Yeah, I think that while in theory, every healthcare professional should be able to talk to patients about sensitive issues, I feel like OTs are really positioned well to do so because we got to talk about the toilet and bathrooms. And so once Mm -hmm. you break that seal, literally, (laughs) you can talk about more things, I think. 
And so I feel like it's important that we're the people that try to bridge that gap and that barrier and build a rapport and also ask about it so that people know that they can talk to you about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And going back to our stories of how we found OTs, that's the reason you and I went into OT and the reason lots of us went into OT is to walk with people through this experience. And Parkinson's is such a great example of that. As I was thinking about all the both the motor and the non-motor issues that patients can be having. I was thinking about just like an initial patient evaluation, and it's such a complex presentation. I was wondering how, in your opinion, when we're doing an eval, how we can introduce all these ways that OTs can help without it being overwhelming, but also making sure that we're kind of checking all the boxes, knowing that patients probably aren't going to volunteer many of the things that are going on related to their Parkinson's. I think a good method for considering your evaluations that, yes, technically your eval is a one-time visit, but in theory, I believe that we should be evaluating every visit. And so while it might be overwhelming to talk about all the things that could be impacting them for Parkinson's, and I know you got to know some stuff up front so you can write good goals, but I like to try to start with the things that are most important to the client, right? Because I want them to know that I'm listening to them and what their needs are, and then I might throw in my two cents around the back end of that and like, have you thought about this? Do you have a problem with this? And then they're more likely to talk to me about it. So however that works best for you as an OT, as far as what's comfortable for you to do, what works with the documentation system where you work, and what things you need to be focused on, I think if you can tailor it towards what's most important to them to start with, it can get you a long ways. And so Mm -hmm. I think the main thing is keeping it on the forefront of your mind that you want to go into all these other areas. Because it's so easy to just get caught up in being productive filling out the paperwork that's in front of us and getting the job done, which is our job. But it's easy when you think only in that tunnel vision to not pick up on the other things, especially the non-motor symptoms and particularly in Parkinson's. And so even if you don't get to it during your eval, if you have a way to give yourself a checklist or tape something to your computer so you know that I want to be asking these questions at our next visit, that can help make sure that you're progressing along. And of course, that really depends on what setting you're in. If you're doing acute care, you got like yeah. two visits, right? Two or yeah. three visits. <laughs> so you got to do what you, it was immediate right there. But if you're going to have multiple visits with people and really be able to dig into more than just the initial basic ADLs, then try to find some way that works best for you to remind yourself to come back around to those topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can see... The benefit of shifting our thinking from thinking of ourselves as basically like long-term consultants for people with Parkinson's, someone who we hope that they'll come back to us once a year, twice a year to check in on things. Mm-hmm. And so also thinking about discharge of being like, here's a checklist of things we can help with in the future. They may not be your issue now, but just so you know that this is a place you can come back to and we can help you with these things in the future. I think it was Vanessa Yen is on the 
podcast who sees cancer patients. And she said that she literally does that, just has a list of areas that she can help with that she shows her clients. And I really see that as being beneficial in a complex presentation like Parkinson's as well. Mm -hmm. Related to that, I also wanted to ask about education and providing education to these patients. There's so much to be educated on. It can be overwhelming. You don't need to know everything at once as a Parkinson's patient. And there can also be a level of cognitive decline going on. So I was wondering in your practical experience, just any thoughts you had on best practices for providing patient education? I think the main thing is give them education in a way that they can best receive it. We all learn differently. And depending on where you work at, you're hitting them at a different stage in life or stage in the healthcare process, I should say. And so if it's acute, you can't give them all the information up front, right? Because we're just trying to sit up and get out the bed and get home. But if you can if you can help people transition to the next phase and know what to expect for the next phase, then I think that's the most useful. So if I'm in inpatient rehab and I'm helping somebody discharge to home, yes, we're going to do the primary things that we're going to do for basic ADLs in the clinic. But I want to be talking to them, too, about what to expect when you get home, what to expect from your home health therapist, what things to ask your home health therapist about, going back to our last topic, so that they know when it's the right time, this is the person or the way you're going to get this information. And so the more we engage with the information, the better it sticks to our brain. So I want to talk about it verbally. I want to provide handouts that they can refer to later. And I want to provide something that will maybe be self-initiated so that they can engage with it. So that might be recommending a support group or signing up for a website where they can get information on a regular basis or setting some alarms on their phone in order to remind them to do X, Y, or Z so that they can be getting that education and knowledge even when I'm not in front of them. Because I'm not going to be in front of them forever, no matter mm -hmm. what level of healthcare I'm providing. So I think that the more you give people, the better it is, as long as you can give it to them in bite-sized chunks that they can digest. The mm -hmm. other thing I really like if you're in the home is to post something somewhere. So it's, and it doesn't even have to be in the home, even in a hospital room. Like I like to put things on the wall so that we literally have a visual cue that is on bright colored paper or with a crazy colored marker that gives like a, just a few bullet points to keep on the top of their head. Whether that's something mm -hmm. as simple as make sure you have your socks on before you get out of the bed, your hospital socks, or be sure to do your exercises morning and evening something to keep the motivation going and that makes sure that they can come back to it because we get distracted by life so easily and especially things that we have happen in our background as far as chronic diseases I think we don't always take the time to understand how it's impacting our everyday life and if we do a few simple things everything can be a little bit better just if that makes mm -hmm. sense Sometimes it's like, oh, I just have to deal with this. I have Parkinson's, so it's just what it is. Well, if I do a little bit of exercise in the morning and the evening, it seems like not a lot, but after a while, that could be really impactful. And so I think it's nice to be able to try to encourage people to do that and find ways to fit into their lifestyle. 
I love that. And I'm regretting when I was in the hospital that I wasn't walking around with a post-it notepad in my lab coat. I wish I had done that. That's such an easy win and just like a powerful mechanism for all of us to remember the things that we need to do. And one of the challenges with Parkinson's and chronic diseases is you're having to think so long-term and you don't get like this short-term win sometimes, you know, Mm -hmm. of the things you're doing, like it's hard to exercise for everyone. And yeah, it's just, we need those reminders. We need people supporting us in that, which kind of leads me into the next question. Exercise is so important in Parkinson's disease. The research coming out behind it is, I think some of the most exciting research that we've looked at in the club where it actually has the potential to maybe modify the disease course, which we don't get to see that that often in therapy, to be honest, where something that we can do can affect the long-term disease course. So it's so important that we're talking about exercise, high-intensity exercise. I'm going to link like the latest 2022 article on Parkinson's and exercise that just like really drives that home. I wanted to ask just really practically what it looks like to encourage our patients in the habit of exercise and how you've done that in the past. Oh, so it is really hard to be consistent with exercise for any of Mm -hmm. us, right? Yep. And the way I like to think about it or encourage people to start with is to help them understand how important it is. Like, I think Mm -hmm. over the course of our lives, we understand like, Kids should get out and move, and we should get to exercise. And just as a general rule of thumb, we should eat healthy, but we still like to eat burgers and fries. Like, as a general rule of thumb, we should move. I like to drive the point home specifically for Parkinson's patients. Like you said, this is a disease-modifying process, potentially, if you exercise. This is why this is so important. And once you understand why it's so important, I think it can be a lot easier to affect change in your life because it's just more immediate. This is not just good overall that you should exercise. No, if you want to keep your motor skills as good as you can for as long as you can, the research shows us that you need to move. And -hmm. particularly, you need to be moving in big ways so that we can try to counteract the smallness that Parkinson's likes to occur for our movements and all our, our muscle contractions. And so when I explain it in that way, I think people are more intentional about finding ways to get that movement done. And so the next part from that is finding ways that they're actually going to keep up with. So mm-hmm. I used to play basketball. Playing basketball would be a great way for me to keep moving. But I'm not a runner. And if you tell me I need to go hiking or run five miles in order to do this, I'm going to be like, mm, no. Okay, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not going to do this in the back of my head, right? Whereas I might still get that same level of activity in a basketball game. So I think knowing your patients and getting down to what's the things they did in their past, the things they like to do now, do they have grandkids that they like to play with? Can they play catch with them? That's going to facilitate moving around because inevitably nobody's going to catch the ball every time. So you're going to have to walk to go get it. You know, think outside the box and let them know that exercise doesn't have to be walking on the treadmill at the gym. Like, sure, you Mm -hmm. can do that, but there's plenty of other ways to get movement into our day and to be intentional about that because you know that this is going to be a way to help you. I like to think of it as medicine. 
Parkinson's, our medications, you know, make a big difference, I guess is what I'll say. And people who are on medications for Parkinson's understand that if they don't take their medication on time, they have legitimate effects from not having it in, them, in their system. And so if you can connect those two things together and say, just like you need to take your Cinemet every four hours or whatever your schedule is, if you also do exercise twice a day or every day for this amount of time, you're going to notice that in your movement patterns pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just going back to that thinking of ourselves as long-term consultants in a year, it's time to check in again and ask where you're at. Are you still liking basketball? That's okay if you're not because there's a billion other things you can be doing to exercise. And there's just going to be a natural ebb and flow like all of us to our exercise things. And we all do things for a season and like to go try something new. And it's really important that we help you find that new extra thing. Mm-hmm. And putting people in contact with ways that that can be given to them. You know, like it doesn't have to be so self-directed all the time. If you sign up at this community center, they actually got Tai Chi going on. They've got yoga. They've got all these different things. Maybe you didn't even know about this way to move your body, but now you're interested in doing it because it's around you. Or you go to a support group and they say, I do these things. And that opens up a door for you. So putting people in contact with ways to actually make that movement happen, I think is really helpful, especially if it's something that continues on a regular basis. If they get an email that says, here's our new classes coming up, that's a trigger point, right? To be like, oh yeah, I haven't been moving very much. Let me sign up for that thing. Because you're not going to be there for forever, but you want to try to make your impact long lasting so that they're thinking about, oh yeah, Brandy said I should probably do this. I guess I'll (laughs) sign up for it. You know, I want to be that little voice in the back of your head. Yeah. Yeah, I think so many times we self-limit ourselves as OTs and don't talk about exercise enough. But just as we're talking about, I'm like, it's so much about values. It's about drawing on resources, things that we're so good at thinking about. And I think too often we leave exercise to our physical therapy counterparts. But it's absolutely something we should be embracing with all of our clients and absolutely, absolutely with our Parkinson's patients for sure. Mm-hmm. Kind of switching gears, I also wanted to ask you about home modifications, knowing that that's kind of your bread and butter. And when you have a patient with Parkinson's, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your go-to home modifications and adaptive equipment that you tend to recommend. Yes. I think the first thing is thinking about their current status versus their future status, which is what we're talking about here is you know, thinking long-term. And so while people are tend to call us about immediate needs, like I had a fall in the bathroom, now I don't know how I'm going to deal with that on a regular basis, we certainly want to address that. But we, in addressing it, I don't want to just put a Band-Aid on the situation. I want to think about the long-term effects of what we're doing. So that's the first thing that's on top of mind. And then that helps us to decide what kinds of equipment and changes we need to make. I'll also draw the distinction that while there are many companies out there that do home modifications to do changes that are more construction focused and permanent to the home, and that is definitely a good way to go, we particularly focus on adaptive equipment because I wanted to be able to be accessible to people who are renting and who are homeowners. Maybe you're just living with a daughter for 12 weeks because of something that happened and you're going to go back home and we can't make permanent changes. But those 12 weeks are still really important and a lot can happen in that time that could go good or bad. 
So when I say these things of what we could do, it's not the only way to solve the problem in the home, but it's just the way that we do it. So I think the first thing we're thinking about is balance and mobility. And so what are the things that we can do to facilitate the best balance and the best mobility? Things like, I'm going to go back to the bathroom because bathrooms are my favorite. So even if you got the stamina to stand up in the shower, shouldn't you consider what if you don't have it that day? And this is a fluctuating thing. I like to say having a shower chair is a great way to ensure that you limit your fall risk. It doesn't mean that you have to be stuck to that shower chair the whole time you're in the shower if you're capable of standing. But what happens when you need to wash your hair, lean over and close your eyes? What does that do to your balance? That makes you the least balanced in the most dangerous place in the house, right? So if you just have a chair available, that means that when the time comes, you can sit down and prevent that fall from happening. Or we also only have so much energy available to us. We know that a lot of neurological diseases, especially Parkinson's, makes your body work very inefficiently. And so regular things that you do take a lot more energy than they used to. And so why use your good energy on taking a shower, which is just something you have to do? I want your energy to be used on things that you want to mm-hmm. do. So sit out in the shower. doesn't mean that you're incapable of standing, but it's like a great place to rest at because it's not a great place to rush at. And I think a lot of people rush in and out of the shower because they don't want to have a fall. And that's the first way to fall. So we like to think about balance and mobility and outside the box about what do we need now to make it safe and then what will we need in the future. And then the other things that we like to think about are fine motor coordination. So when people are just thinking about home modifications, they tend to leave out self-feeding or getting themselves a glass of water because that's not accessibility related, but it is happening in your home. And so we do talk about those things. And so do we need weighted utensils? Should we use something that's going to also have some vibration to it to try to counteract your tremors? What about where you actually sit to eat? Are you sitting on the couch, which is unstable, and your feet aren't flat on the floor? And maybe should we consider sitting in a hardback chair at a more standard table or desk where your arms can be supported? Those are all things that we're going over and then trying to find solutions to actually make them happen. And then lastly, we'd like to think about fall prevention. So while you Mm -hmm. might be doing okay now, what are things that we can change in the home that will prevent us from having falls in the future? So we kind of talked about chairs in the shower. Grab bars are sometimes a good way to go about it because they're when you need it, even if you don't need it all the time. Walking over a change in flooring can really freeze people up with Parkinson's. And so while that's a big change sometimes, if we can do things to smooth that out or at least counsel people on the fact that, oh, I see you're doing some changes, are you considering your flooring? Oh, yeah, I'm going to remodel the kitchen later, but I hadn't thought about that. Well, here's some things to think about. Maybe you should make it the same hardwood that your dining room is. So as you come through this entryway, there's no change there and you won't have a hang up there. So really try to think long term, even if it's not something that we're going to do, but provide that education again about thinking about how the place you spend the most time at should be the place that facilitates your best level of ability. Yeah, those all sound like so practical, so helpful. Again, I'm coming back to just that desire to be seeing these patients on an ongoing basis, to be Mm -hmm. checking in when new needs arise, when their status is changing a little bit. And like you said, when they have other 
outside factors coming up in their lives. Like they're already doing a home remodel or they're moving and thinking about these big picture changes as well. Mm-hmm. I definitely wanted to ask too about community level and national resources that you recommend people get plugged into as we've been talking throughout the podcast. There's such an education need, such a need for support, not something that OT can be doing on their own, even if we are seeing them on a regular basis. Do you have resources that you typically recommend to patients? I do. Two big things. One, I think every person with Parkinson's should go through the LSVT big and loud Mm -hmm. program. And that is one way that every outpatient clinic everywhere could add a specialty service because we're all, in theory, qualified to learn to do this. And you probably are already doing some of it as just a therapist, but getting that certification from LSVT and then marketing that program to the community helps people know that you have this particular interest in helping people with Parkinson's. And it's super research and evidence-based. And so... The big program particularly focuses on the fact that if we do these big movements consistently, then it will help train our brains to relearn again those motor skills to keep our movements bigger and avoid that shuffling gait or that small shake that we have when trying to bring a spoon to our mouth because our body wants to do these short movements instead of these big ones. And so it's an intensive program in that you're supposed to go for about a month and go four or sometimes five times a week. And that's what the research is based on and the programs are facilitated that way. And so it's kind of like boot camp. And so Mm -hmm. when you go to the program, you're going to be doing these same things over and over and over, but it really does work. And then you're given a bunch of stuff to do at home as well so that you can continue with that high level of repetition. And so it really is useful. And the research also shows that you should go for a reboot. And so this is another good way for people to get back into services. Maybe you go in January or February at the beginning of the year, and then you go again at November or December. And that just gives you another opportunity to be engaged with the healthcare system and making sure that we're staying up on our exercise, right? Mm Because you're going so frequently. So I really like to recommend that. And then the other things I like are connecting with resources. So there's two really good websites or organizations, the American Parkinson's Disease Association and also Parkinson's.org. And through both of them, you can find resources available for caregivers, for the person dealing with Parkinson's, connect to support groups, which I think are so helpful because then you're talking to a peer as opposed to, you know, the hierarchy model we have kind of set up here for healthcare mm-hmm. relationships. And I think people are more open in support group settings. And a lot of them are set up in a way that the caregiver gets to go to a different room with all caregivers. And that way people can talk more freely without feeling like there'll be some blowback from their loved one or their caregiver hearing what's going on with them. And so you can pick what works for you and you can find something maybe that's virtual if getting out is hard. But I really think the getting out and meeting with other people is a helpful mental mm-hmm. tool and also a good physical reminder to move, right? Because you inevitably leaving the house and going to a group means that you had to do more than you were going to do at home. So it's twofold in that way. And so those are the things I like to recommend. 
Yeah, I love those. I love how practical this discussion has been so far and really painted a picture for me of what it looks like to provide treatment to these patients. I wanted to ask you two just like big picture, forward-looking questions as we get closer to the end. I was wondering, from your opinion, what it would look like for OTs to truly see Parkinson's patients on a regular basis throughout the disease course. We've kind of talked about how that is not always the case. What do you think it would take for that to change? What does that look like? I think we just have to, I think it's two different ways. One, if you work in a traditional facility setting, being intentional about the way that you set up your treatment visits and we've done a lot of advocacy work to ensure that the therapy caps has been changed and we can really work within our scope of practice to demonstrate why it's necessary for people to come to see us as long as we're achieving real goals. And then there's nothing to say that you have to see somebody for two times a week for four weeks and use those eight visits in such a short amount of time. Why can't we write a plan of care that's set up for a couple of times in a month and then one time a month for a while. Yeah, you might have to do a reassessment every 30 days, but it gives you a touch point over a longer period of time to see if what you're recommending is actually getting implemented. Sometimes we do things because it's already kind of preset in our systems Mm -hmm. to do them because that's how we usually do it. But did we ever actually ask if we could do it a different way? And sometimes it just takes that. Like, can we set up a program to encourage Parkinson patients to come and we do outpatient visits once a month? That's mm-hmm. only 12 visits in a year. That isn't like overutilization of therapy, but it gives you a much longer time to work with somebody. The other way is to think even more outside the box and start your own thing. And so I think there's a lot of ways for a therapist to get into entrepreneurship or start a private practice and focus even particularly on Parkinson's or other neurological diseases. At this time, Medicare is allowing you to do outpatient in the home. And so you could go to people's homes and bill insurance for that and create the kind of program that you want, whether that's you getting certified as a big therapist and you go to them and do it, or you want to focus on home adaptations or whatever you want to do. I mean, the world is really open to you if you think outside the box and then come up with ways in order to get that funded. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just think there's so many different opportunities for different business models to serve this population. I think uh, here in the United States, we're passing the licensure compact in more and more states. And to me, that in combination with telehealth being more widely accepted opens up this reality where me in small town Nebraska could see, I don't know if you're part of the licensure compact, I could be seeing you over telehealth and our patients deserve to be seeing an occupational therapist who focuses on Parkinson's. And the reality is not everyone has immediate access to that. And I think these new opportunities like telehealth open that up and there needs to be OTs who are thinking differently and leaning into these new opportunities that technology and legislation are opening to us. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and that Compact Act is really important because one of the services we started to provide during the pandemic was telehealth, wheelchair evaluations, and and assessments. And 
what we had to do is get licensed in every state that we wanted to work with. And one connection leads to another. So another provider in Illinois is like, can you do a telehealth for us? I'm like, technically, yes, because I'm just still here on Zoom and there's no difference. I'm not having to drive there. Mm -hmm. But actually, no, because I'm not licensed in Illinois. You know, and so the compact and telehealth together, I think, really create this wide open opportunity for people to work in a way that works for them and solves real problems for real clients. We're talking about how the article says you need to have continuous engagement with the healthcare system, but also with exercise. And we know how important it is to have somebody kind of like on your team cheering you on in order to do those things over a long-term basis. And having a telehealth visit is a really easy way to do that. And Mm -hmm. I think that while the pandemic was terrible and is terrible, and I wouldn't wish it on our world ever again. The things that it did do for us is many more people understand how to access the internet and do things virtually. And so I think you'd be surprised to learn that many people with Parkinson's of an age that's over 65 have a tablet and can connect to something simple, right? And so I don't think they should think of technology as a barrier for reaching those patients either. Mm-hmm. Yep, those patients need to be able to Google therapy for Parkinson's and different OTs come up at the top. And it just seems like there's this opportunity where the research is backing this, the technology's there, our legislation's coming into place. And the biggest barrier that I see is just OTs having the courage to try something new and getting out of our normal way of thinking Mm -hmm. and, yeah, stepping out to serve this huge need in this way. I totally agree with that. We actually are putting more limits on ourselves than we really need to. And it's worth it to just try. And even if you don't know if you want to like jump into the world of entrepreneurship, that seems like a lot. Like you can be an entrepreneur. You can start a program at your facility Mm -hmm. where you work at for something that's needed or something that you feel like you just happen to be passionate about. Like that's totally doable. Those are all still business skills and you still get a full-time paycheck. So think about it that way and start a program where you're at. And I think you'd be surprised to find out that there are a lot of different ways to serve our community as OTs and we're really poised well to do that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We are at our rapid fire time. Are you filling up for a couple quick questions about OT? Okay, I can do it. What's your favorite part of being an OT? That it is so creative and open. No two sessions are the same. Even if they have the same diagnosis, they could even be the same gender and the same age. We're still going to do two totally different things. And I love that about OT. Oh, and I can totally see that about you, that you love that challenge of doing things differently. And yeah, the enjoyment of being creative. How do you usually describe OT to your patients? I like to try to put OT in the context of whoever I'm working with. But my most favorite go-to phrase is to say, I'm here, I'm your occupational therapist. It's my job to help make sure you can be safe and as independent as possible doing all the things that you want to do. And so that gives us an opportunity to talk about anything. Mm-hmm. Love it. What's something that you've read or listened to lately that's inspired you as an OT? I spend a lot of time listening to things that are business focused. And so Wisdom from the Top is a podcast with Guy Raz and he interviews Mm -hmm. 
CEOs of businesses that you probably have heard of. And it's really inspiring to learn about leadership skills through that and through their own experiences. So I would highly recommend that because it's all applicable to OT. I should be listening to that. Yes. (laughs) As my last final question, what do you think is the most important thing for OTs to take away from our conversation today? I hope that OTs feel the same way that my patients feel, which is empowered and hopeful that you can literally try anything and the world is open to you to make effective change. I don't think any of us became OTs because we wanted to do paperwork and hit our productivity levels. We became OTs because we wanted to help people. And so Parkinson's is one huge area where we're underserving a lot of people. And so that means there's lots of room for innovation. And hopefully you feel empowered to consider that in whatever ways would work in your setting and your life. Hmm. Brady, I'm so thankful you came back on the podcast to talk about this important topic. And for me, just to serve as an inspiration of what it looks like to be innovative in our field and to be helping the people in your community. I think you do that so well. And I'm so thankful for your time today. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be back and I'd love to come back again anytime. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) We'll talk to you again. Thanks. Wow, you guys, this was the kind of conversation that reminds me that as new information is coming out about the diagnoses we work with, that we really need to be changing and adapting in both small and big ways to provide the best care to our patients. This is a diagnosis that affects a lot of our clients. It affects our family members and members of our community. And I'll just be eager to talk about it with you more in the OT Potential Club. And there we'll have a forum about this podcast and one about the article. We'll have lots of supplemental resources for you. And this is just such an important topic area. I definitely hope to revisit again on the podcast next year to talk about the updates that we're hearing. So as I said at the beginning, the OT Potential Club is the place where you can go to take a five-question test on this episode, and we can generate a certificate for your time here today. And as always, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk to you next time.